Welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Wart's program featuring books and authors of Wisconsin. We're taking a different tack today. Instead of a conversation with an author, today we'll be talking with the major purveyor of books, music, and film in the community, the director of Madison Public Library, Greg Michaels. Greg came to Madison 11 years ago from the Lincoln, Nebraska library system. When he arrived, he found himself in the middle of the construction of the Central Library, a $30 million project. But that was just the beginning. During his 11 years as library director, Greg Michaels has overseen the most significant transformation of any agency or service in the local government. Let me say that as a former alder, um, i familiar, I speak as, as a level of, as someone who watched many municipal agencies, and um, there really was nothing like what happened in the library system. In addition to overseeing the completion and opening of the new Central Library, the public library opened two new branches, Meadow Bridge on the west side and Penny Library on Cottage Grove Road on the east side. And now there's a third library in the works on East Wash on the edge of Rindell Park. So we went from seven libraries to now additional three. The changes in the work of the library has not gone unnoticed. In 2016, Greg Michaels accepted the National Medal for Library and Museum Service at the White House. The library was also selected as top innovator by Urban Libraries Council in the race and social equity category. Eight staff members have been recognized as library movers and shakers by Library Journal. And closer to home, the library took over the management of the Wisconsin Book Festival in 2013. That's just some of it, and we'll talk about more of it. But now I'd like to welcome our Madison Library Director, Greg Michaels, to Madison Bookbeat. Hello, David. How are you? It's good to see you here. Uh, we have a lot to talk about because so much has happened in the library system. In preparing for our discussion today, I reviewed the web pages of, of some of our libraries. Some of the programs and activities I found were mental health and wellness coaching, clothes mending, cooking classes. There's voting at all libraries. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Building with Lego, and I could go on and on. I mean, there were there are literally 50 different things happening at these libraries. Uh, this is a different concept of a library, and it it's really ain't the library I knew even 20 years ago. Um, and it's a system that, as an old guy, really hadn't changed from the time I got my first library card at six years old till fairly recently. What happened? Why did it happen? Well, I think it was response to what was happening in the community. Um, coming into Madison gave us a, a variety of opportunities, particularly when I arrived. Uh, as you mentioned, Central Library had just been basically demolished. So we had a terrific opportunity with new leadership coming on board, uh, with the new Central Library being built. And it was that time where I felt we could take the organization in a new direction. Traditionally, libraries have been somewhat static, and it was focused on the user coming to them. And I really wanted to approach it the other way, that this is a facility, a resource owned by the community, and wanted to have it more community-driven. And so I wanted it really to shift from like a static uh, institution that just provided to a dynamic institution where there was input from the community, there was dialogue with the community, and far more community engagement than libraries had seen before. Mm -hmm. uh, and But, I mean, we have this incredible proliferation of activities. I, I um, uh, was using the library for a meeting room uh, over on the north side, and, um, and it was a sort of a social political discussion for the neighborhood. And, um, and all of a sudden women came in with knitting 
And they said, oh, no, you're, you're in the wrong room. This is our knitting room on every other Wednesday at 8 o'clock. And I thought, oh, that's great. You know, first I thought, well, why are they knitting here? And I thought, well, what? It, this is a common place, and some people can't have twelve people knitting in their in their living room. So it it serves that purpose as well. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, it kind of defines the direction where libraries have been headed, where we're taking direction from the community. What are the community needs, and um, taking those cues. A great example of that is our bubbler program. Let's talk about that. What's uh, the bubbler? A, a bubbler program was specifically designed initially as an artist-in-residence program. But what it did and why it's been successful is that it tapped into the creative class of Madison. And I still recall when we had our first artist come in after we reopened Central Library and they said, well, what would you like us, what would you like me to do? And we, Trent Miller, uh, director of the Bubbler program, and myself, just turned the question on him and said, what would you like to do? Mm-hmm. And that's the question we've been asking the community since then. The driver for our services, for our programs, really needs to be sourced from the community and, how, and how the do you bubbler get that? was one of those. How do you get that? I mean, how, how do you get that feedback that, gee, at, um, at Hawthorne we ought to do Lego, <laughs> uh, but not at Ashman? Or maybe we should do Lego at both. Where one, does that come from? One of the ways I've always looked at it, David, is that we need to be bigger than our buildings. And, and um, in the past... Everything was directed within the libraries, and that's still a major part of it. Our collections are still extremely important to the community. But I always directed staff to be in an engagement mode and to address the community of, why don't you tell us what we should be doing for you? And it began with community conversations outside the building. So we would attend community meetings. We'd hook up with different movers and shakers in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sheree Wallace is a great example uh, Mm -hmm. on the south side. And she was doing terrific work with communities, bringing them together for meals. And the library tapped into that energy. And soon we began to learn what the needs were from the community's perspective, not what we thought they were. And, and the reason why I brought up the bubbler initially was that gave us a vehicle or a platform to tap into the creative part of Madison and, and the artists, the, the people with the imagination of how we could develop our services, our programs to address the community in their way. Mm-hmm. And what it entailed was for myself, for a lot of our staff to look at it outwardly and, mm-hmm. and develop relationships with different organizations, different community leaders. So I was out of the building more than I was in. Mm-hmm. And, and we would take that information to help inform our programs. That's, how, how did your relationship, um, I, I guess it's with Trey Wallace or other folks, how did that sort of morph into building a library? on the west side well it was it, it, it was an opportunity it, it was actually uh mayor soglin at the time uh came to me and he, he said the hardware store is moving and, and it, you know we were just a portion a small portion of that shopping center yeah at, at metalwood and uh he said what do we think we could do for this because this is a terrific asset that's moving out of the neighborhood And actually, it gave us an opportunity to partner better uh, with the community center that was there and to expand our space. So we took over the hardware store Mm -hmm. and we were able to expand it. But what we did was kind of unique in that we really listened to the community about what their needs were. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this might seem unique for a library, but that we put a kitchen in that library. Mm-hmm. And, and the only reason we did that was 
that was what we were hearing from the community. Uh, we knew that kids from Tokay Middle School who had been there all day, they would come to Middle, Middle Ridge Library uh, in the afternoon right after school. They'd stay to 9 p.m. We knew the last meal they had was their school lunch. Mm -hmm. And so then we started like an after-school snack club that was supported by our foundation. So what, what we really tried to do was read the needs of the community and address it. Mm -hmm. And um, Meadowbridge was a great example of that. Mm -hmm. And how about um, for 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 Penny Library? I mean, there's, that's, I'd say, my library. <laughs> it's the library that I use and that I was involved with in um, uh, sort of securing the location and so on. And, um, but uh, they have a tremendous um, youth or child or even toddler um, section there that's a play area and so how, how did you get the sense that this is something that would be different about Penny? I think Penny's a great example of us truly listening to our community and really looking at the community from a different perspective and listening to the people they use our facilities. Um, as you know, um, I, I think one of the first times I met you, David, was you standing with a petition outside the old <laughs> Penny Library trying to get signatures to build a new one um, on a Sunday yeah. afternoon. Yeah. Thank you very much sure. for that. Um, but um, that was the right approach, is listening to the community. And then what we look at is how we translate that information into library resources and library services. So you'll see this is our only library that really has a dedicated outdoor play area. Yeah. And, and that was very intentional uh, from what we were hearing from our community to engage young people in a new way. And uh, we had an existing program called Anji Play, which was modeled after a program in China, in Anji County, in, in the Republic of China. And we took the lessons we learned from that program and began applying them. That's, we, we were doing these programs in parks, and we extended that to Penny Library and allowed the practices. So that's why you found like a play area uh, to do learning from mm -hmm. and how play is so important in the learning pro process of children. So it really had purpose. It wasn't just a nice amenity. Uh -huh. um, and uh, it's been very successful. Yeah. When you come in, uh, a room that's for the arts, um, that's always being used, whether I go there at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 7 o'clock at night, there's always some kind of group doing some kind of great artwork in there. Yeah, it's a, you know, that's, that's an extension of our bubbler program that originated at Central Library when we opened. And then artists started coming forward and going, this is way cool. This is to be able to work with the library, to be able to have a residency, to do some of my work and connect with the community in a meaningful way. Penny's been a terrific success story in that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, with that studio program that right as you walk in, you see all this activity happening. And artists are one of those special class of people that just engage the population in, in meaningful ways and in different ways. And that's where we're looking at libraries being more dynamic uh, as opposed to like the static uh, of the past. Mm -hmm. um, people used to describe libraries as perhaps the living room of, of the community. And I always wanted to ramp it up a notch. And I always describe libraries these days as perhaps the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the reason I always said that was typically when you go to a party at someone's house, for whatever reason, you seem to end up in the kitchen <laughs> more, more than some lounge sitting because that's where the activity was. Yeah. And that really defined libraries now as mm. a very dynamic environment. Active. It's a very and active. active. Yeah. Uh, exactly. A little mm -hmm. noisier mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Uh, so we, we have to pay attention to that. 
So at Penny Library, you know, we have our quiet reading room place, uh, a little sanctuary for the people that like it, a little quieter. And then we pay attention to how we design our buildings now uh, to allow for that more activity. Uh, one of the other aspects of Penny, and this is probably true for the other libraries, and it's something that uh, is sort of a reminder to me about um, is the number of computers that are there and how heavily that they're used. And it's a reminder that, gee, not everybody has two or three or four different devices at hand or at home that they can use to get into the cyber world. And that these people come at, you know, at when the library is open, very often the people who are waiting for the library to open are the people who are going to use the computers. Yeah, that's that's a great point. It's it's really libraries are so valuable to the community, particularly for those that have not. Um, and, and access to robust broadband is is clearly one of those needs. Um, Anybody who has just the regular access like you or I might have, it doesn't, you, you don't think about it as much until it's gone. Mm -hmm. and, and then if you think about, wow, I don't have access to the Internet or my phone isn't connecting. And there's a whole segment of our population that has that situation with them. So mm -hmm. um, uh, particularly during COVID, uh, which was... Probably, and I can talk about a little later about one of the most difficult decisions mm -hmm. I've ever made in my career. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about COVID, one of the things we struggled with was knowing those individuals in the community were completely isolated because they, they didn't have yeah. that access yeah. when mm -hmm. our buildings were closed. Yeah. You mentioned that libraries are often perceived as, as living rooms and, or kitchens. or One of the peculiar or unique aspects of libraries, when you think about it, it's the only open public space, period. I mean, in, there's no private space like that. Uh, you know, bathrooms are only for customers only. You can't uh, walk into uh, the city-county building and just take a seat and and spend uh, half a day there. There's no seat there. Um, but libraries are open to anyone and everyone, and um, there's sort of no questions asked about it, what's your purpose here, or can I help you uh, kinds of questions. It's just an open space. That's a tremendous benefit for the community, but it's it's really raised some problems for libraries as well because there's no other space. Many people who are homeless gravitated towards libraries because it's especially in the winter months or the very hot months, a place where you can just go and be. How have you dealt with that as as someone who's had to maintain that space really for homeless people, but also for people who, who are not, and creating a common space between um, for everyone? That's always a great question, and thank you for asking it, because I think that is clearly one of the most important aspects of public libraries right now. Um, to be welcoming to all. And I remember particularly when we were reopening Central Library and I was giving a number of talks throughout the community, telling them about all the new features and how great this new building was going to be and everything that we had planned. And I, I was really faced a lot of times with the question, well, what are you going to do about people experiencing homelessness? I, I mean, that it, really? Is this going to be a place for them? And I said, yes, it, it really is. Libraries are for everyone in our community. With that said, we do have expectations. 
And I think we do a really good job at defining um, behaviors, what appropriate behavior is in the library, but also making it accessible to everyone. And no matter what your economic status might, might be, um, a lot of people always also have a different perspective of what is homeless or someone experiencing homelessness. I remember coming back from a meeting once downtown, and I, I noticed a family getting out of a car, like a station wagon van type of vehicle. It was clearly that was their home. Uh, you could just sense mm -hmm. of everything. Once they left that vehicle, though, you really didn't know that. Um, but these were individuals experiencing homelessness. And, and what you discovered was this family was looking for a safe place that the library provided, was looking for a place for perhaps some respite for the parents uh, being under tremendous stress of living in a car with your family and everything. It's a little tight. <laughs> and being able to provide some experience, positive experience for the children. Mm -hmm. And it's an important service that libraries do in that regard. But, Our, you get, but do you get the pushback that, I don't think people usually say this explicitly, but I don't want to go there because it's just homeless people. You know, occasionally... Uh, occasionally, mm -hmm. I, I do. Or, uh, you know, we can hear about uh, rambunctious children or rambunctious teens. Sure, you hear that from Penny. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, libraries have to be designed to be welcoming for everyone. Mm -hmm. And we do our best to try to accommodate for those occurrences. You know, when I was talking about the outdoor area at Penny, and the dynamic youth area that your grandchildren are mm -hmm. enjoying. Mm -hmm. I also talked about the quiet reading room, that if somebody wants that, or the, the access to computers, or to explore their creative side with the studio. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we try to diversify our programs, our services, and particularly our staffing. Um, it, you know, we might be somewhat unique uh, for most libraries where we might have creatives on our staff that don't necessarily have a library degree. You let people and, who don't uh, have a library yes, degree? Yes, yes, we do. But, um, you know, that's, that's really to make a connection with the community in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And the way I look at it is we need the right personnel to meet the needs of the community. And if we see this, now, we have librarians and non-librarians working on similar projects, particularly through the bubbler. We have a social justice program where we go to the youth detention facility, for example, and we bring artists into that facility, and we have a whole program for youth there. Um, if you were looking at numbers, it's small numbers of young people, right. mm -hmm. but it's pe young people that really needs some positive attention directed toward them. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're bringing to them. Fantastic. And, yeah. and you see that reception mm -hmm. uh, for the kids that participate in that program. Yeah. And um, we do that because we bring people that they can relate to. We'll bring artists. Uh, you know, if you look at the Youth Detention Center, practically every wall is covered with a mural these days. Mm -hmm. That was helped designed and executed by the, the, the youth that are in the facility. Time to say, I'm interviewing uh, Greg Michaels, who's the director of the Madison Public Library, who is retiring today or tomorrow? Or March, March 1st. March 1st, okay. <laughs> getting, getting, getting 30, They're pushing me out the th door, David. 30 days to go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> who's counting? <laughs> Uh, this is Madison Bookbeat, and we're talking to Greg Michaels, who really has overseen, as as you may have heard, and you'll hear more of, um, really a transformation of what is a library and what are what are the libraries as part of the Madison community. So, I mean, taking your last example of having an artist go to. Um, youth detention facility, this really becomes 
a community services program that's outside of the dissemination of books and periodicals um, that uh, we think of as what's the core function. Uh, in fact, it raises the question of whether or not dissemination of, of books um, is a core function. I mean, is, is the core function of libraries or is it now spread out? Books are intrinsic to libraries. And, and the way I've always described it, you know, like I've, I've gotten this question from the community and they said, you know, with the Internet and with everything going on, the streaming, are books going away? And I, I think people are somewhat surprised by my response. I said, I always say it's just too good a technology for it to go away. <laughs> yeah. And they just kind of look at me, and I said, the printed page is actually an amazing technology. And um, that's going to remain with us for a long time. That's not going away. But what we're finding at, since we're a center for the community, and we can address and connect to the community in so many ways, because one in particular is we're a trusted institution, um, even though we might mm -hmm. be a government agency, nobody really views us as a government agency. Mm -hmm. They really review as part of their neighborhood, as a resource to their neighborhood. And, and with that responsibility, we need to be responsive to the needs of the community. Like I was mentioning at Meadow Ridge, you know, providing snacks or after school snacks, you, you know, mm -hmm. that gives us another opportunity to engage uh, the patron, the child, in, in other ways mm -hmm. a, as well. And and that's what's going to be meaningful in the long run. You know, but books are a huge part of it. Um, that's, now, that's still our core business right there. <laughs> I saw that um, in your annual report that the number of books, or maybe it's items, but I presume it's mostly books, uh, that were uh, lent by the library in 2023 was 20% higher than the previous year mm -hmm. and 2.3 million items were lent and, and just doing a very fast computation. That's 10 per person who lives in <laughs> Mass. Yeah. Now, I've taken my... One, one way I've always described it when I've given talks in the community is everyone's familiar with Randall Stadium and uh, if it's a full capacity. And typically uh, at a year's time when it's a sold-out stadium, if you think of everyone from 40 to 50 books on their lap, <laughs> everybody that's sitting in the station yeah. gives you an idea of how many materials were actually circulating. So, so books are not going away despite um, a lot of people saying that we're all going to be just watching TikTok <laughs> from now on and getting everything we need to know from right. TikTok and Instagram. Now, one thing that has increased dramatically, and we saw a huge surge, particularly during the height of the pandemic, is access to electronic books. And I know being out in the community before then, there were... People that would say, never, hey, you know, I'm always going to be reading the printed page. Well, when the pandemic came upon us, they were exposed to the electronic side of things. And like myself, that I call kind of a switch hitter reader, is I still love to read from the printed page. But if I'm in a doctor's office, if I'm traveling, I have access to electronics. Uh, you know, books as well. So the ebook circulation is like a hockey stick. It's it's it was level and now it's a unsteep. Yeah, actually, rise. I, that's my beef. They're so back ordered. Uh, I tried to reserve a book the other night, which I rarely do electronic, and it said approximate wait forty weeks. No, I I, I can <laughs> empathize with that. Um, it's a real struggle to keep up with demand. Yeah. And and one of the things that uh, a lot of our users, in particular our U-book 
our ebook users aren't aware of is that they're far more expensive uh, than than print. Um, uh, you know, even though you would think it's electronic copy, mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't cost. It costs. But costs the library more. It costs uh, more to buy an e version of a book than it does the paper version, and um, it's and the publisher only allows one user at a time. So just like if it was wow. a paper book, but it's on electronic shelf, so it it costs more. So you can't, it's only you one can't on buy one. more than one copy of Oh, yeah, we can, and we do that. Yeah. But it's it stretches our budget. I see. Um, and it's tough to keep up with the demand. Yeah. So so comparably, what is it? So if you're buying, you know, um, Tom Lake uh, by Ann Patchett for $25 as a, as a hardcover book, what it, what is the what's the charge for well any yeah depending on the publisher it yeah. could, it, it could be up to you, you know twice or or three times the price wow. of what a print copy might be wow. um, some publishers now um, also d- uh, have count the uses of the book and you know as a paper book we have to replace those occasionally because they yeah. physically wear out mm-hmm. and and need to be replaced. Electronic versions never suffer from that. So publishers now count uses and look at uses and then ask us to repurchase after so many uses, Um, you know, because they're never going to wear out. So there's a lot of factors that Mm -hmm. that don't that that people don't realize um, some of the costs that we have with providing this. So trying to keep up with demand is is a real challenge. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I'm a very late user to it, and when I first did it, which was like this year, <laughs> I was surprised. Oh, other people are using this too, uh, and and the other thing, which people, I mean, you really, folks who haven't done it, is to look at the library homepage and and see the number of other resources such as movies that you can watch at home, which is virtually every old movie. <laughs> you can now watch at home without paying uh, Netflix $15 a month. I mean, it's it's really amazing. No, I mean, that's, that's where libraries uh, have been challenged the most um, is the increase in formats. Um, mm-hmm. There was all, always formats that we had to deal with. Uh, DVDs are still popular, uh, hmm. still a popular circulating item. Uh, for libraries in addition to print. But uh, now we have, like, the resource you're talking about, Canopy, which mm-hmm. is a streaming movie service that we provide, yeah. very similar to the paid subscription services. Uh, it, you know, and and this is also a time for a shout-out to our foundation. Uh, a lot of those things are made possible because of our foundation, Canopy is one of those. Uh, they've been able to support that so we can provide that to the community. Um, and it's extremely popular mm-hmm. with the community. Yeah. Um, but those are the different resources, formats. Uh, the formats keep increasing. Um, and that puts a lot of stress on our budget. I recently just started reading some magazines online, things that I would never normally subscribe to and i mean the numbers i think was a choice of 2000 <laughs> magazines it was kind of daunting to sort of open up that file and say oh my god i i will probably spend the rest of my life going down <laughs> going down this tube it just a, a credible array of activities uh, let me filter back here for a while and and talk about what you mentioned as really the most challenging part of your career at Madison uh, during the COVID epidemic and uh, what you felt to be the, how you were going to approach it and what were some of the successes and and things that didn't work? That's, you know, I, I, I truly pause for a moment because that's was so impactful. Um, from my experience leading 
an organization through a pandemic. And, you know, one of, we make a lot of decisions. One of the most difficult decisions is one when you have no choice. And that's what we were facing there. And I can remember back right to the day, March 17th of 2020, Mm -hmm. when I was meeting with the mayor, when I was meeting with the president of the library board, almost one phone in one hand and a phone in the other hand. And I'm just going, we have to close libraries. And, um, you know, that... That was so difficult to do. So just so it, it's not like oh we're gonna close one library for a day or this was closing all of our libraries and we had no idea for the foreseeable future. We we had no idea <laughs> yeah. when we'd be able to open them. And, and, and we pitch, really thought we'd be reopening in two three weeks. We're going how how <laughs> how long can this thing go? And uh-huh. and um, as we all know, how how far it went. But what it did create was a terrific opportunity for our organization to, to think in new ways, um, to pivot in new ways. You know, we wanted to maintain as much access as we could, but it had to be a re- remote service now. Uh, we weren't doing it in the building. Mm-hmm. So we developed online library cards that people could apply to. I, you know, I could recite my library card number now. <laughs> I, I said it so many times. It, you know, eventually that, that read, led to a, a major increase in access to, to e-books. Oh. That, that was really, you know, a paradigm shift there where people had access to electronic resources better than the physical collection, but the need for the physical collection was still there, so we developed curbside pickup, mm-hmm. a- and we had that. Uh, patrons still so, ask us if so we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> they loved it uh, for somebody to come out like a car hop and say, here's your books. <laughs> that was just wonderful. Or they could step up to the door, and there would be their bag of books <laughs> waiting for them on the table. Uh, we still get requests for that. I, I wish we could be as generous uh, with our resources to provide that, but but we can't. But it it really um, was a an opportunity for us to rethink how do we pivot to continue to provide these necessary resources. And if if you look at outside of the necessary functions of of the city that had to remain public health, public safety, you, you know, they, they couldn't close their doors. Mm-hmm. Probably when the f- first doors that were reopened by other agencies were, was the library. And, and the reason behind that was um, we knew who our customers were. We, we knew the community. We, it, you know, it was amazing to see librarians during that time, making welfare calls to regular customers really? that we knew came into the library for that personal contact. We knew people were without their broadband, yeah. completely yeah. isolated. Mm-hmm. So that was the first time we began to reopen our doors before a lot of the other city agencies did, and it was initially to provide computer access. Yeah. And, and that we just saw, this was such an essential uh, ingredient for the community to have access to. And that's that was our first open door, wasn't that. I see. Right? Uh-huh. It was all a guessing game back then. Yeah. I, I mean, the way we were scrubbing down books and, and disinfecting <laughs> computers, <laughs> yeah. we could have operated on some of those tables, I <laughs> yeah. swear. Yeah. Yeah, and it was just um, well, it's it's what we knew at the time, you know. And uh, right. looking back, you say, well, that was a misstep, but we learned, and and um, you know, the, the institution survived, yeah. and uh, and in many ways it thrived, as you mentioned, because right. people looked at ebooks and other kinds of resources. But it also pointed out to one thing that um, many people probably don't realize with libraries. Um, Everybody knows libraries like to share, 
because mm-hmm. we're always mm-hmm. having resources available. But we're really good also among our profession of sharing. And uh, during this crisis, it was so critical to be in touch with my colleagues across the country and who was doing research on contamination, who right. was who was closing, who was staying open, what were your practices. And um, it was one of those opportunities in a moment of crisis that it was great to be part of a profession like libraries that were so open to sharing about our information mm-hmm. and how everyone was handling certain situations. And I want to talk a bit about that, but first I want to uh, say uh, this is, you're listening, listening to Madison Bookbeat. I'm David Ahrens, and we're talking today with Greg Michaels, who uh, for 30 more days uh, will be the director of the Madison Public Library System uh, following 11 years in that position. The Rindale Library. Uh, what's your plans for that? This is an exciting project. Um, and I, ironically, as I've been going through my files, uh, 11 years of, of work to review and, and things to look, I, I've, I've been kind of reflective of some sort. I, I went back to my very first board meeting, um, which was like in September of 2012. And the charge given to me by the library board president at that meeting was, let's figure out something about providing library service to the northeast part of Madison. Uh That was that was almost 12 years ago. Yeah. Eventually it evolved. uh, And now it's a project that we've labeled Imagination Center of Rydell Park, where I'm most proud of. It's also showing an evolution within the city and within libraries to look at the advantages to co-locate. And this is a joint project mm-hmm. between the library, Madison Public Library, and City Parks. Uh, it's going to be a library connected to a park pavilion. So part of, part of that was um, to replace an aging pavilion, but to bring additional resources uh, to it. So it's going to be unique. Um, in that perspective, um, it's also going to be exciting in that just as we have a small outdoor space at Penny Library now, we've got one huge backyard <laughs> yeah. uh, for this library. Uh-huh. And, and we're looking to make that part of our programming as well. The design of the new space is totally exciting. The park really, the part of the building facing the park um, which is will be the back of the building is actually the most dynamic part of the will building. Will really be the front because I mean, it's, it's going back, to yeah. bring <laughs> the park into the building. Yeah. Um, so we're very excited about that. We're very excited about our partnership with parks. Um, it gives terrific advantages, economic advantages to the city, in that perhaps the pavilion's not being used during the day or not being used at certain times of the year, um, and parks might close their pavilions because of this. This is going to be open just like the library. And when it's available to the library, we can use that to program space in. So there's an advantage of not having to build extra space. Mm -hmm. A lot of people said, why are you being so small with this one? it's, It's strategic. Uh, mm-hmm. to be that way, and it really shows the advantages of co-location. Will there be other um, city agencies involved with that library as well, or social service or uh, language issues? Because I know that area has actually more foreign language speakers than any other area in the city. Right. One of the things that we've been exploring is building a relationship with Literacy Network. Actually, it was Literacy Network that came to the library uh, early on when they heard about our project, and they said, we have such a strong position on the south side of Madison, on Park Street, as you know, their Mm -hmm. new facility. Mm -hmm. Um, They've used libraries a lot with their mentors uh, to to meet with students uh, across the city. So we already had a relationship with the Literacy Network. They approached us about 
creating a space, a dedicated space within there. So we've added a classroom uh, feature uh, to the library at the Imagination Center uh, that will be available to the Literacy Network. When they're not using it, it'll be available to other city agencies or will be available to other community organizations. And that's how we approach it. Uh, we want to create spaces that are flexible, that can meet the needs of the community in a variety of ways. I think that's one of the you know great things that's uh, happened at Penny and, and it's great about the Central Library too, is extra spaces. As you know, somebody who has tried to get lots of community meetings and participated in lots of community meetings, there really is no space for people to meet and to get together. And whether that is we all want to knit together or we, or we all want to talk about the future of our neighborhood or whatever it is, there's no place. And and it's great to see that the libraries simply provide those spaces for people to be without paying a $50 overhead charge. Particularly with uh, the Rindall Park Project, when I was first meeting with the community in those neighborhoods and, and listening to the community about what their needs are, and of course it was automatic, we need a library, we need a library. Mm -hmm. But it's it's got to be more than that. It's, it's got to be what really are your needs. And, and all of this was happening in a hotel meeting room. <laughs> so the, I, I mean, yeah. it, it was just obvious, first of all, uh, this one of the largest needs uh, in that area was community gathering space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, at, you know, for free. Yeah. It, it, you know, which is also important. Um, you know, just trying to talk to the community about this project, I've been doing it in hotel meeting rooms or I've been doing it in coffee shops. Yeah, yeah. Church basements. And, and Alders. <laughs> I've seen alders gather the community in parking lots. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, we've gathered yeah. in the park for community input. But this was just a huge need. And then what we've paid close attention to, particularly where we picked up during the pandemic, was remote access to so many things. And where I think we saw an opportunity for the, the Imagination Center project is looking at how we could best extend that. Mm -hmm. So having conversations with other city departments about what kind of services could we provide access to without people perhaps having to go downtown yeah. to provide it in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, we're very conscientious uh, with our design, working with city IT about what we can provide in our community space about connectivity. Mm -hmm. And we're taking that same design concept to our other libraries. Penny Library now has availability to do hybrid meetings. Um, mm. Sequoia will have that capacity. We have limited access like that at Goodman Library. These are lessons that we learned during the pandemic. And it was really opportunities, better ways for libraries to connect the community to services or to agencies to really help them yeah and uh you know that's that's been really an important role that we've played in the community mm -hmm. well uh i think we're out of time unfortunately and i have a whole list of other questions <laughs> but uh, i i really want to thank uh, greg michaels who's the uh, director of the madison public library both for participating in the program for this hour, I know your time must be getting really crunched now because um, Greg's at the end of his tenure at the library. We're, are you going someplace next? Do you have a... We're going to stay put um, in Madison. Oh. Uh, we have a lot of family in, in in Omaha and a lot. Our children, our grown children are in Colorado. Uh -huh. So we'll be travel. doing more visits. <laughs> yeah. But but one thing I, I did want to share with you, David, mm -hmm. and to the audience is what a privilege it has been uh, to be able to have a leadership role with this organization, Madison Public Library, that I'm so proud of. I am s amazed at what we've accomplished, uh, the challenges mm -hmm. that we've overcome, and I'm extremely proud of the staff 
I've been able to work with uh, my colleagues across the city, uh, the city leadership with both mayors that I've worked under, um, and as yourself, being a former alder, that city leadership has been an amazing experience. And it really is a privilege. Mm -hmm. I, I really do view it as a privilege to be able to provide this. And I, I'm so thankful for that opportunity. And you, know, you, you had a great gig here. I did. It <laughs> was did a, a great, great job. <laughs> did a great job. And uh, we thank you for it. As I said at the outset, that really there's no other agency that, in my experience, that has changed so dramatically in so short a time uh, as as the library system and and I should say change for the good. So uh, you've been listening to Madison Bookbeat uh, brought to you by WORT-FM.